0: This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B.
1: Welcome to Doc's Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting-edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry.
0: You're getting real-life insight from men and women
1: pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko.
0: What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. So I have to apologize for the first two weeks not putting out an episode. It's been kind of busy here in this household. But if you listen to last week's episode, you know that we've been planning for this big event, this quote unquote, unknown big event for almost a year now. And by the time this recording comes out, that big event has come. And what it was is that me and Dr. Renee, we welcomed our second baby boy, and um, we're really ecstatic. Now that I'm recording this, we're about day five, day six, lack of sleep. You know how it all goes for you parents out there. But Dr. Renee is healthy, baby boy is healthy. They are home now. And I'm going to be taking an extended paternity leave. So, over the past several months, I've been doing double shifts, I'm working as close to, to FTE as you can trying to save up enough money so that I can take an extended paternity leave so that I can be more present at home without worrying about trying to get back to work, trying to pay the bills, and so forth. Um, Also, at the same time, it's going to give me an opportunity to revamp the podcast, so to speak, take some big, hairy, audacious goals for the upcoming year. So I'm really looking forward to this you know, short but much-needed extended paternity leave. And um, if you want to know more about taking some time off, make sure you go back to the previous episode and check that out. We talk about a whole bunch of different things, including taking time off and also the dreaded, well, what if you lose your skills type of discussion also. It's pretty funny. You should check it out. But speaking on having new babies, you all know for those who have had to do the dreaded increasing the amount of dependence on your healthcare coverage, that that's going to mean increasing of your premium. That affects me also. I get my insurance through ACA or, you know, Obamacare. Um, So it affects me from an independent contractor standpoint. It affects my premiums dramatically. And, you know, I really get concerned about even who are not in the healthcare field, people who are entrepreneurs and they have pre-existing conditions, how all of these talks of quote-unquote repealing the ACA, how it will affect, you know, their trajectory in terms of being entrepreneurs and going out on their own and knowing that there's already protections for their pre-existing conditions, that being stripped away? Will they have to go back to being employed? It's really interesting and I hope that it works out and I hope that this coverage continues. You know, But I don't claim to be really knowledgeable about all of this. So that's why I brought on a good friend of mine from med school days, but has really you know taken it to a different level since then. He is a doc outside the box. His name is Dr. Cedric Dart and he has a group, a website called Policy Prescriptions. Now, prior to starting this organization, he spent some time in Washington, D.C. and found out that pretty much the majority of lawmakers, congressmen, congresswomen in Washington, D.C., they make a lot of the decisions based off of politics, off of ideology, and really not much evidence-based knowledge, which I'm sure you guys are all shocked about, right? (laughs) So he decided to lay his hat into the ring And he wanted to make it easier for the lay public as well as for lawmakers to make informed decisions by creating policy prescriptions, which will be a space where they can get concise reviews on health policy. Basically, this is a Cliff Notes version of health policy so that these lawmakers can make some really informed decisions. So this is going to be a good one. So besides learning what makes this organization, what also makes Dr. Dark so successful, he's going to give us a quick civics lesson on healthcare funding from a federal level. He's also going to talk to all of you docs, all of you clinicians who are sitting on the fence, not sure if you want to get into healthcare policy. He's going to give some advice on how to get onto the front lines. Now, this is going to be a really good conversation. This is a little bit different than what we normally talk about, but I think this is really important, particularly for you all who are really interested in being more vocal on a healthcare policy standpoint, but not sure exactly how to talk. I want you all to share this episode with people who you think will definitely benefit you can also reach out to me at Dr. Nee Dark on all social media fronts. And without further ado, I present Dr. Cedric Dark with Policy Prescriptions. Dr. Cedric Dark from Policy Prescription. What's up? What's good? Thanks for joining me on Docs Outside the Box. What's up? How you doing, Nee? I'm doing all right. Hey, listen. So, you know, this has been something in the making. I've been haunting you, chasing you down, trying to get you on the show. And now you're ready. And I have you on this show because I want to talk about health policy. We want to talk about policy prescriptions, how it started. We want to learn a little bit more about you. So before we get so much into the nitty gritty about, you know, just politics right now and where doctors fit in, let's learn a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your background, please.
1: All right. So going all the way back to, say, college, went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, a place that is unlike any other place to go to school. It's a great environment, the Atlanta University Center, and you have about four major colleges and then a couple of other like graduate schools in the vicinity there. It's just a wonderful environment to be around black people that are getting their higher education. it's a unique place. And it served as a very good foundation for me. And it's a place where I still have friends to this day, some of whom are physicians living in and around Houston and doing what we set out to do, what, almost 20 years ago? So,
0: Yeah, it's a long time ago. What about your thoughts of becoming a doctor? When did that start coming into your mind? Is this something that started all the way in childhood or is this something that developed while in college? I think it's
1: somewhere around high school or so. I mean, I've always been sort of a science person. I remember one of my earliest memories of wanting to do Something medically related probably revolved around one of my aunts, my aunt Barbara, died from colon cancer, and it made me want to do something about it, maybe become an oncologist, find a cure for cancer, something you know grand like that. Eventually, through college, I you know went through the pre-med tract and managed to make my way to medical school. And so wound up doing medical school in New York City. main reason I wanted to go to New York was I had been in Atlanta. Atlanta felt kind of like a small town, you know, I wanted to do, like, the big city thing. That's right. Um, And Graduate to varsity. Yeah, you know. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go to... My choice was between New York and Pittsburgh. And interestingly enough, college had been the choice between Morehouse and Pittsburgh. I chose Atlanta at the time because I was like, I don't want to freeze. And then I chose... Over Pittsburgh again. Sorry, people from Pitt. Pitt's an awesome institution, both for undergrad and for medical
0: school. Yeah, but it's cold. Uh.
1: But it's cold. And then. And the sun
0: uh, never comes out, you know? So.
1: You know, but. And, you know, and I hate the Penguins. So. Okay. Um, so you're a
0: hockey fan too.
1: I, I love hockey. I, okay. I should have brought my Ovechkin jersey to put on you know, for the Stanley Cup champion, Washington Capitals. Yeah. Okay. But
0: <laughs> I grew up as know. a Devils fan. So I grew up in New York, New Jersey area. So gotcha. I okay. was a Devils fan. So we were rivals. Are we still yeah. our rivals? We're uh,
1: still rivals. But yeah, so I went to New York, had a great time there. I, the main reason why I wanted to go to New York was like, I want to be in a city that's running 24 seven. that's always got something going on. If I'm getting off a rotation at three in the morning or something like that. It's I the to city to that never sleeps. A, yeah. I want to be able to get a sandwich. So what, what um, medical school did you go to? New York University.
0: School NYU. Okay. NYU. Okay. Um,
1: I'm still paying off some of those sandwiches okay, um, for my student loans. <laughs> but see, I finished at a great time where the interest rate is so low that it Hell makes yeah. sense to pay it off forever.
0: Right. Um, so I'm sure you're able to reconsolidate or consolidate your loans. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I came out, the interest rate was so low. Like People that are graduating medical school now, I yeah. feel bad for them. And I understand why following you and Renee's story. And you know, I kind of know why you guys hustled to like pay off a lot of stuff because time, I guess you guys were really trying to pay off stuff. People leaving now, like their interest rates are what, 8 plus percent? And I'm like.
0: And that's for federal.
1: Yeah. And yeah. So no. I'll show you below this many fingers. Oh, really? my percentage rate.
0: Okay. So it's basically just borrowing money, basically. And- you know, not really making much interest on it. So I definitely understand your standpoint. So for those who are listening, there's this train of thought that basically, depending on how low your interest rate is, sometimes there's this debate that goes on of, should you invest or should you pay off your debt? And what Dr. Dark is talking about is that his interest rate is so low that it more than likely makes sense for him to invest his money, save his money, and then make payments towards his student loans, but not be as aggressive as how I was which was basically scorched earth, $200 a month for food and trying to pay off debt as quickly as possible. So, okay. All right. I get that point. So then once you're in medical school, like when did you decide that ER medicine was for you?
1: Okay. So ER medicine, I actually just told this story to a couple of people because literally I just got back from Cuba on a vacation. Since I'm not doing the scorching, it, edu- it was an
0: educational. You mean edu- educational yeah. purpose, right? Like, you well, can't just go for vacation. vacation. It was- okay. Right. Got
1: it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So if the federal government's listening to this podcast, it was an educational people to people exchange, learning about musical history and jazz.
0: No so- cigars and nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Let's move on. Let's move on. on. Let's move on. Moving so you're on. telling people about how you got into ER. Let's go. Come on.
1: Yeah. So anyway, when I. First moved to New York. I moved to New York in two thousand one, was there for two weeks. We were taking anatomy, learning about the brachial plexus, all this kind of stuff. Two weeks in, nine eleven happens. And obviously that was a life-changing thing for many people. Life-changing for those of us that were there at the time. I remember seeing the Twin Towers burning from my dorm room on NYU and you know, rushing to Bellevue Hospital to try to do something to help out at the time. Eventually, later on in that afternoon, getting shoveled over to Chelsea Piers to try to help set up the mass unit that they were anticipating victims showing up at and then eventually seeing no one actually show up because most of the people that were injured were fairly mildly injured. Everybody else seemed to be mortally injured and so never really made it to the hospital or at least to that portion, that staging area. So that was one thing that influenced my thought, I think, in terms of specialty decision making. And then the second thing was beginning of third year, if you remember, there was that massive blackout in the northeast. Yeah,
0: I remember yeah, the um, whole electrical grid and the yeah, electrical and grid
1: went down. I was at the time I was doing my neurology rotation, which happened to be on the seventeenth floor. And so I remember having to walk up seventeen flights of stairs to go to a rotation, which is, you know, good exercise, but nothing I necessarily want to do multiple times. Right. Again. Especially not twenty years after that. But what happened is a lot of the nurses and people that worked in the ERs were stuck in the outer boroughs because the subways were also shut down at the time. Um, most people were taking the subways to get in and out of the city and in and out of Manhattan. And so a lot of the medical students, we kind of helped out in the ER just to keep things running. And so I had another experience down there, uh, worked with a colleague, a mentor of mine, Mike McGee, who I think was a resident at the time. And he was in emergency medicine. And he kind of mentored me through medical school, and those were some of the experiences that sort of directed me towards emergency medicine, mm. I think. And then every time I was on a rotation, whether it was neuro or internal medicine or surgery, I just loved being in the ER, you know, doing those original histories on the patients and enjoyed that more so than the day-to-day following them up on the floors.
0: So obviously it's solidified that ER is for you, you're yeah. going to go into an ER residency. Tell me about health policy got involved in things. How did that get intertwined in your ER career? And then we'll take it from there, actually.
1: Yes. So during my third year, I learned about a program called the Macy Foundation Program. They had a very specific opportunity for medical students in New York City to all go to Columbia University and do the Mailman School of Public Health program between third and fourth year. and I jumped at it, it was free. And it put me in touch with about 11 other soon-to-be physicians that now have all gone to do various things with their Master's of Public Health degree. But it allowed me the opportunity to do epidemiology, biostatistics, in so much more detail than you get in medical school but then specifically for me it allowed me to learn about health policy and politics and so
0: a couple you, of the four- So before this though did you have an interest in this because i mean it's i mean it sounds like you're gung ho ER and is there like a rationale behind all this or
1: you I, I think i had an understanding of you know i could probably do something to help one patient at a time but you know be nice to do
0: grander things. Uh, I see. So you want to help um, the population on a lot, you know, help
1: period. the population. And I think that opportunity just happened to come up, and I was like, "Oh, let me jump at it." As opposed to me saying, "Oh, I really, really want to do an MPH and figure out the best way to do it." I kind of feel like it just fell in my lap a little bit in that sense. And so, you know, I took a health economics class from one of my professors named Sherry Gleach. She's now the dean of NYU's Public Health School and. You know, she taught me pretty much everything I know about health econ, you know, in her course. You know, it, it's just nice knowing people like that because she's gone on to work in the Obama administration. And she's put me in touch with some of her other students who become like, are the director of the public health department in Louisiana right now, uh, Rebecca G. And people that, you know, through my professors I've been able to connect with and talk to and kind of help mentor me throughout some of the decision-making that I made in life. One so, of the other so you,
0: courses... So you've been meeting with some big heavy hitters who ended up having some huge say in how policy on the United States is planned.
1: Yeah, exactly. And one of the other courses, this one is over at the School of International Public Affairs, but something that I was able to take as part of my public health degree, I took a course with David Dinkins. He used to be the mayor of New York mm-hmm. City. And essentially, it was a course of people that are caring about a lot of different things. So like Myself, and my friend Stan Frencher, we were like the medical people there. There are people that were concerned about water purity, people concerned about sanitation, people concerned about child welfare and adoption, all that kind of stuff. And it kind of made me realize healthcare isn't everything. If you're the mayor of a city, or a governor, or a president, you really have to consider all these different aspects of things. And kind of gave me that concept of you know budgeting really tells you what your priorities are, right? So where we decide to put our money. Ultimately, whether it's your family or whether it's the entire federal government, where we put our money tells us where our values are. And it's really everybody's vying for the same piece of the pie. And you really got to make those difficult decisions. So So I learned that. that
0: So at that point, what did you learn about New York politics and New York budgeting and New York healthcare? Like, I'm sure you were able to to understand budget. So was healthcare a priority at that point?
1: Well, we did a project looking at the Health and Hospital Corporation, which is like New York City's public health or their healthcare organization. And just looked into how they actually delivered care and just found that fairly interesting and talked to a bunch of interesting people and tried to figure out, you know, what are they doing? How might they be able to do it better? That sort of thing. But the opportunity that I got from this actually set me up as a stepping stone to go work for Capitol Hill as part of my capstone project, um, mm, okay. you know, the culminating project for my public health degree. And I spent the summer working on the Hill for the House Ways and Means Committee.
0: What does that mean? I hear all of these different committees. There's like the Armed Forces yeah. Committee, there's the Appropriations Committee. What exactly did your committee do?
1: So, in reality, Prior to, I would say, the past five years or so, Congress in committee is Congress in action has been what they say because the committees are really what drives things. Lately, it's been you know Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and whomever trying to dictate how things work, regardless of what the committee and the committee heads think. But specifically, if you're thinking about healthcare, there's a few committees that are important. So Ways and Means, which is essentially the money committee, any type of money getting budgeted somewhere, they'll have some regulation or authority over that, okay? And so the Medicare program is essentially through the Ways and Means Committee. So if you want to have any influence on the Medicare program, that's where you want to be if you're a congressperson. Medicaid tends to be in what's called the Energy and Commerce Committee. So they have a lot of authority there. And then there's other committees, like if you're on the Veterans Affairs Committee, you might have influence over the Veterans Health Administration. Or if you're part of like Indian Health Service, there might be another a committee that has jurisdiction over that. That's on the House side. On the Senate side, there's other groups to consider. So like the Senate Finance Committee is huge because that's where the money comes from, all right? So you think of healthcare or science programs, there's two types of committees. There's the money committees, which you need if you're trying to have a program or policy. You can't do anything without money. And then you have sort of more the policy type of committees. So that would be like the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee on the Senate side, which. They both have influence, especially when you're talking about big things like the Affordable Care Act. But if you're like a congressman or senator and health is your thing, you want to be on one of those.
0: So, you know, I'm really interested to find out when you got to Capitol Hill, making moves, talking to different congressmen, congresswomen, you know, whoever, like what was the overarching, I guess, thought process of how they thought about you, right? Because there's not many people who are physicians, not many people with so to speak, a clinical background, did you feel like you were on even footing with them? Did they look at you as the same? Did they look at you more or less? How did that feel when you were at that level?
1: Yeah, I found it kind of interesting. And, and sort of correcting you a little bit, like where I was, I was a peon in there. So it's not like I'm sitting there meeting with, you know, Charlie Rangel, who was the minority ranking member on, on Ways and Means at the time, I mean, even though I'd run across him every now and again. But it's mostly the professional staff that we work with. And a lot of these conversations take place at the staff level. So I was working with a lady named Sadelle Yorkland, who's like been a Hill staffer for a long time and sort of guided me through the process. To answer your question, I thought the way they looked at it was like, I know a whole lot about medicine, which they don't know because they're not doctors you know, or health professionals or anything. And so I feel like on the one hand, they thought I knew much more than I truly did because I was just a third year med student at the time, in all honesty. But then by the time I left, feel like everybody in medicine is like, oh, man, you know so much about how government works. And I was right. like, I was just an intern over there. <laughs> so, But at the same time, it's kind of true because, yeah, like how many people wound up doing that, whereas I have had that opportunity.
0: So. Okay, so then the, my question then is, is with that setup that you just described, I mean, there's a lot of legislation. There's a lot of policy that they're making, particularly in healthcare. Without, I'm assuming clinicians' input. Is that fair to say? Or,
1: yeah, it's completely fair to say. The people that I would meet with,
0: oftentimes, you know,
1: if I was, you know, kind of look at what I was doing, is almost like the equivalent of being a medical student in the health policy game. Right, you're kind of shadowing along whatever your residents are doing. If you want to consider the Hill staff as like residents, and you want to consider like the congressmen and senators as like the attendings, right? So a lot of time your interaction is at that resident level. But the people that come talk to us. You know, those are the lobbyists, right? And people from like the National Kidney Foundation, I was working on something on end-stage renal disease and people from the National Kidney Foundation come in and talk to us and talk about whatever their talking points were. And, and honestly, you would learn things from them or get differing perspectives from them. You would also talk to people at various DC think tanks about particular issues that you're working on or issues that might be important. And so you get your input from that as well. Not as much, I would say, in terms of the regular constituent, because remember, I was working for the committee. I wasn't working for the member. And so that's a different dynamic. When you're working for the member, you probably get a lot more constituents coming in because I was on the staff for the actual committee, and that staff has responsibility to all the members of the committee. We're getting probably more of a heavy-handed dose of lobbyists and industry people.
0: Okay. So that summer is done. You've learned a lot. What gave you the impetus to go ahead and start policy prescriptions? And at the same time, tell us exactly what policy prescriptions is.
1: Yeah. So as is everything in DC, it all starts writing it down on a napkin in a bar somewhere. Uh, okay. And so, you know, essentially jotting out the idea for it started back then, probably about 2000, what was that? 2006 or so. And then eventually about two years later, we launched a website with the idea that what we would do is kind of serve as a bridge between doctors and the health policy world. Because there's a whole ton of health policy research that goes on out there. And I don't expect that any physician has picked up a copy of health affairs or health service research or medical care research and review. You know, you probably haven't read that lately. I'm guessing. I don't know.
0: No, I haven't read it yet.
1: (laughs) Okay. But you might have looked at things like, you know, some trauma journals or you know, Journal of American College Surgeons, right? You may have read that, perhaps, because that's what you see on the medical side. You might read New England Journal, Jam, and that sort of thing, but you're not going to read the policy side. And vice versa, it goes both ways. What we started out was trying to take that information that's kind of locked away in the health services research field and make it accessible to people that aren't in that field, whether they be lay people, physicians, or policymakers. And so what I like to describe what we do, the short version of it is like Cliff's Notes for health policy.
0: Mm. So that legislators can basically have clinically based, evidence-based knowledge before they make policy.
1: Right. Our whole spiel is evidence-based health policy. So what we do is we take a look at data, we analyze the data, and then we try to tell you how that data should apply to policy. Mm.
0: So let's talk about, you know, creating something like this. Because in essence, is this a think tank? Like explain, describe that for us. Because sometimes I look at it as, is policy prescriptions a think tank? But I'd like to hear from you. What do you think about it as? I'd like it to
1: be a think tank. I don't think it actually is a think tank right now. And that's one of those things. When people ask me what it is, I'm like, is it a blog? Is it a think tank? Is it a consulting group? I don't really know. So it's a bunch of people that are similarly doing the same thing. And you launched this when? This was launched 2008. 2008. So it's been going on 10 years.
0: 10 years now, um, okay. Yeah,
1: and I kind of think of it more like the Wu-Tang Clan than anything else because everybody kind of has their own little thing that they do. But every once in a while, we kind of come together and we do stuff together. But each person kind of has their own career and their own direction. The
0: sum is greater than the parts because...
1: Uh... I mean, you used to be one of our folks, right? You right, know? right. And what I consider our retired writers a little right. bit.
0: Right, and it's funny. Well, I used your platform I think I learned a lot from your platform in terms of, you know, just kind of putting myself out there, reading journals and understanding what's going on with the world of policy, the world of, you know, just evidence-based, you know what I mean? Basically making it so that it's palatable to the lay public. And then that started the, you know, the seeds to kind of start my podcast was, how can I start to understand how you think and how other people think and how successful you can be and see if I can be able to relate that to other people who are looking for that also. So I do thank you for giving me an opportunity to be a contributing, was I a contributing reviewer, I guess? Like a, something like that. Yeah. So strange.
1: strange. (laughs) Titles change. It's just like, for me, it's whoever does the work does what matters.
0: So now that it's been 10 years in, like, what kind of lessons have you learned? Like, what, Have you noticed that maybe policy prescriptions, has it really helped in terms of changing the landscape of how you know people in Congress, people in the Senate look at health care and look at health policy? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think we set out to do that. I don't think that we've succeeded at that at all. I think that where we have made change and made differences is we kind of educating people specifically medical students physicians as to what policy is and how you can make a difference and also that we should be using evidence to make decisions because i think you know prior to this project but even still now we see a lot of policies are made based off of ideology and you know what's good for us whereas i think I've noticed over time, especially now when we're in this, you know, cycle of fake news and battles over science and vaccines and all this kind of stuff and people that deny climate change. And now we're, there's a bigger push to actually bring science back into the forefront and think of making policy decisions based on science and evidence. And so that's where I think we've had some help in trying to.
0: But I mean, it's got to be really. Hey, docs, there's a saying. If you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Now's the time to define your future by being a part of the Physician CEO program. Physician CEO is a business immersion program developed by MBA faculty from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You're getting an intensive MBA style education made up of modules that cover topics like leadership, entrepreneurial ventures and everybody's favorite branding. And guess what? This program is designed for busy physicians like yourself who don't have time for an MBA, but still want to be a better version of yourself. Trust me, the program gets you in focus from day one. So get those skills needed to lead a hospital or start a new venture. You're always going to ensure that there's an open seat waiting for you at the table. Don't miss this opportunity because class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. It's gotta be real frustrating right now, right? Because the truth is the truth, facts are facts, but there's a contingent of people who say, no, that's not the truth. So how does that work in terms of you who, you know, you have something that's, we've all learned, you know, goes through the process of the rigors of research and so forth and then someone just says, yeah, no, I don't believe that. Doesn't that really even affect like your livelihood or even affect like the livelihood of policy prescriptions? How does that make you feel?
1: I think, you know, that's always the case, right? Even in medicine, right? We have, someone writes a journal, like anybody's ever been to a journal club before, right? Someone will read a journal. Half of the room will be like, yeah, I like this. This is great. This is practice changing. And the other half of the room will be like, this is crap.
0: Or there's not know? enough power in it. or
1: yeah. yeah, I got you. And so like any individual article, any individual research study can kind of be used and manipulated to state a point, right? And you see this, like the organ Health Experiment came out. And this is like one of the biggest, probably like number two, in terms of pivotal health policy studies in our lifetime. and Can you describe it a little bit, please? Yeah. The Oregon Medicaid experiment, essentially, this is before ACA came about, but they had some money to give people Medicaid. They didn't have enough to give everybody Medicaid that they wanted to give it to, so they ran a lottery. And essentially, they randomized people to getting Medicaid or not. And so the people that got Medicaid were able to go see the doctor. Surprise, surprise. And you saw things like ER visits go up by about 40%, you know? And in the minds of some people, you're like, oh, that's so bizarre because we give people insurance. They shouldn't be going to the ER so much because people constantly demonize the ER as a place where people go when they don't have any access. But realistically, when you have actual access to care, you're going to use it. And the first point of access is the emergency the ER, for welcome. most people because the system and the infrastructure might not be well set up enough to go through primary care and see your specialists and do all that. And then again, you know, what's better than one-stop shopping? The ER is like the seven 11 of, you know, the medical world. Right. But, or maybe more, let's call us more like the super target, the Walmart, you know, <laughs> I was about to say, it, Super Walmart, right? <laughs> super Walmart. It's more like Super okay. Walmart. Like you, you can get anything and everything any time of day. We're over 24 seven. Actually, deal. it's probably
0: super Target because the prices, the, the, the prices, prices are, are a little, little bit better. Yeah. No, 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 prices are better at Walmart. You know what I'm saying? They're more transparent. Right. Whereas at Target, you know, the price is a little bit higher. You know, there's a
1: little markup there. Yeah, you know? There's a markup there. <laughs> but you, you can get your MRIs and your CAT scans and all this other good gotcha. stuff. You know, products might be not as easily attained at Walmart as at Target. So you know, sort of the analogy I would say, but. You know, I mean, when you're looking at it, you have this experiment, people are getting coverage, they're going to the ER more, they're using primary care visits more, they're using medical care, prescriptions, all this kind of stuff. And that's what we saw. Now, on the flip side, a little like, they did a study about 18 months after this randomization process, and after people got coverage, and they looked at things like, did their diabetes change? Did their high blood pressure change? Did all these other clinical outcomes change? And then they said, Overwhelmingly, no. None of that stuff actually changed at all. You know. And so then the question is, is it better to give people access to care, Medicaid, or is it better to leave them uninsured? And I think when you look at those studies, the studies that have come out of that, people that are on one half of the political spectrum say, yeah, it's much better because, hey, they've been able to go to the doctor. We found out that they don't have financial insecurity because Medicaid is covering their healthcare costs. One of the things you do find is, When you take a self-reported inventory on mental health, patients are happier if they got Medicaid than if they didn't get Medicaid, you know? Whereas on the other side, some of those other clinical outcomes, you know, like mortality, blood pressure, diabetes control, those weren't changed. So people on the other end of the spectrum would be like, well, maybe it's all for naught because there was no actual clinical change. Maybe we should just left them uninsured anyway. Or maybe there's a better way to spend that money than spending it there. And that's where, you know, you can look at, Again, the same study kind of come with divergent interpretations based on your political spectrum. I got and you. that's sort of the interesting thing about what we do is we look at a lot of this stuff and we try to say in the context of all the other information that's out there that we know about, what's the right decision to make? You know, whether it be the decision to the left or the decision to the right. And that's what we try to do.
0: Hmm. Let's pivot a little bit because you're now 10 years deep into, in essence, healthcare advocacy, I, mm-hmm. I, right? Yeah, And, you know, as social media is playing a larger role in the voices of people who normally wouldn't have a role, I have to say that I think we're seeing more and more physicians using social media to get their voices out there. So I just want to know, like, what's your thoughts on how the lay of the land is now for doctors jumping in and laying their voice? Because to me, it just felt like there was a huge paucity of voices, you know, of doctors or, you know, physicians in general in healthcare policy. What does it look like now to you as opposed to, you know, back in 2006, 2008?
1: Yeah, it's definitely changed. I think in the beginning, probably, you know, the beginning of doing this, you know, the voices that you heard from physicians were more like, I'm, you know, this kind of physician and I'm using my blog or my social media to try to generate patients for me in my office. You know, that kind of thing. And I think now you see more and more people speaking up on issues, whether they be things ranging from, you know, like gun violence, which we'll we'll get into a little bit later. But it can also be stuff like the Muslim ban or, you know, the children being separated from their families at the border, that kind of thing. So I see physicians being a lot more social activist now than in prior years. And it may be just be physicians are finally getting used to social media like the rest of society had been and we're you know, maybe our organizations are becoming a little bit more lenient as to how we engage because they see social media less as a threat and more as an opportunity. You know, it's difficult because I, I feel like back in the day, positions would just stay quiet and stay yeah. bummed about a lot of stuff. They would stay in their lane. Yeah, they'd stay in their lane. There's a lot of risk in, you know, saying what you believe. And I've certainly said some things and pissed off lots of people, you know, on Twitter, because that's what Twitter's all about.
0: <laughs>
1: but, you know, there's that. But then there's also the great opportunity to engage with people that you otherwise never meet in real life and be able to get perspectives that you otherwise not get because normally we surround ourselves with people that are completely like minded.
0: So let me ask you a question then. So, when a couple of months ago, when the NRA made their tweet, You know, basically, in essence, telling doctors to stay in their lane. And then as a result, you got a whole bunch of different trauma surgeons or uh, other medical professionals who deal with gun violence really started speaking up. What were your thoughts on that? Like when you see things like that where they're responding on social media, do you get concerned more about their response and, you know, maybe get proud about that? Or what about like the follow up? What happens next now? I've done all these tweets, but what's the next Mm -hmm. steps after that? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Quick answer, and then I'll give you a long answer. Quick answer is I'm always about what's next. That, that's me. I've always been the big, hairy, audacious goal kind of person. And looking, you know, five, 10 years down the road, what are we going to do about it? But when that tweet happened back in November, I, I remember this. I was driving to my mother in law's house. I was, you know, I pulled up in the parking lot. I flipped on the Twitter and, <laughs> you know, saw the tweet. And I think it was like right, I saw it then. I was like, okay whatever. And then it wasn't that long after that, that the Thousand Oaks shooting happened. And I remember just sending a little like snide thing saying, it hadn't even been 12 hours since this tweet came out and there's another mass shoot. And then I went to my overnight shift. In the middle of my overnight shift, I'm sitting there where-
0: And you practice at patients. Baylor,
1: your ER. Yeah, I practice at Bentop General Hospital, which is a public hospital in Houston. One of the two public hospitals.
0: So one. I on, work on pantheon, for Baylor. on the Pantheon of trauma surgery. I'd say right.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, you guys know Ken Maddox. I imagine mm-hmm. as, a, as a surgeon, he's yeah. one of our faculty. You know, and like he's like an idol, one of the giants of surgery. And so you know, I work for Baylor. That's who signs the checks, but I work at Ben That's sort of the way that I look at it, but. I'm sitting there at Benton one day or that evening, and there was a trauma that came in. You know how traumas are. They roll them in the CAT scan, kind of have a couple minutes of downtime while they're loading them up, putting in the IV, getting ready to run the scans and stuff. I flipped through my Twitter real fast, and I see that it's all of a sudden starting to blow up for no good reason. And then one of my buddies and one of my writers, Kyle Fisher, he's out of the University of Maryland, works over at PG Hospital, which we Rich, lovingly Rich call George's. Yeah we called the Prince,' mm-hmm. from the area. I grew up around there, actually, and trained there myself. Um, he sent something out to a bunch of us, just with some notes that he'd been kind of he was furious, and he was writing some stuff down, you know, about that NRA tweet and everything. And you know, I looked through, it and I was like, "This is good. We should do something, you know. This is what we need to be, you know talking about." went home after my shift. I think, you know, it was a 12-hour overnight. And I can't take it like I used to when I was younger. 12-hour road nights, no problem. Nowadays, I'm like, I'm delirious by the time I leave there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, too.
1: Yeah, but I get home and I like pull up my Google Drive and we're just furiously typing away, like me and Kyle and then Megan Randy out of Rhode Island and a bunch of other people like Seth Truger and Derek Cass and just a bunch of ER folks. We're just all sitting there typing away furiously. And, like, that morning, all on Google Drive, you see, like, five people simultaneously editing the same piece, you know. And within, you know, the next 12, 24 hours, we had a couple of op-eds that we were shopping around trying to combat what the NRA was telling us to do. And the NRA effectively saying, doctors, shut up, because you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to guns. And we're like, uh, no, we see this every day. I, you know, at my hospital, there are two gunshot victims, I think, daily, so roughly about 600 I mean, so, but, uh, but,
0: but all due respect, I mean, they did have yeah. a point, though, because doctors, for the most part, I mean, it's not like gun violence started at that event. Like doctors right. in general just were not saying anything and effectively kind of just letting, you know, this type of thing have a pass. So although I don't agree with what they're saying, they do kind of have a point. Like if you want to say something and step up. So but anyway, I'll let you get to your point. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> so
1: no, no problem. Well, I mean, you're, you're right, though. You're right. Like doctors had not been saying a lot. There have been some people saying a lot. but There have been a lot of people saying nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think what this did is the NRA effectively challenged physicians in that sense. And physicians were like, nah, you're not going to challenge us to talk about what we see every single day.
0: I was pretty excited about that. I was happy about that. I think it was about time we took a stand on that stuff.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, literally, it was just sort of a reflexive uh, response to them that, you know, the hashtag, this is our lane, if you really go back and search for it, it was started by a guy. Did used to work with me named Michael Gonzalez. Now other people get the credit for it because there are people that have been doing it. But the first tweet of that came out from a guy named Michael Gonzalez. And so I'm going to give him credit where credit is due when we're talking about that. But it took off and people started posting pictures of their trauma bays and pictures of their pants and scrubs soaked in blood, in blood yeah. and everything. And, you know, and my mom sent me a text. I was like, y'all are doing great. Keep going. You know, it's like, All these random people just hear about it and kind of feed back to it. And I got random Facebook messages from people saying, you know, talking about her father, who was a doctor, but also an RA member would have been so proud that we were talking about this kind of thing. So we as physicians really need to be advocates about the things that we're passionate about, whether it's gun violence or vaccinations or, you know, motor vehicle collisions, opioid epidemic, whatever it is, we need to start speaking up. We, as you said earlier, physicians have kind of advocated that responsibility and that leadership role in many areas of policymaking. And I think now we're realizing, not just because of the NRA thing, just overall, I think now physicians are realizing that we need to get back into the game. Because as the old saying goes, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu um, <laughs> in, in health point. policy. So, so it's one of those things where we got to be there.
0: So where do you see your organization? Where do you see policy prescriptions? Where is it going to take a step? What's the next step over the next, I don't know, three years, five years in terms of just being, you know, an opportunity for you guys to kind of give your opinions? Like, where do you see that going?
1: So what we've sort of narrowed our focus down onto, number one has been, you know, our mission is really sort of advocating for evidence-based health policy which gives us sort of a broad leeway to say wherever the evidence is pointing, that's what we're going to talk about, you know. But our overarching vision is making sure that we have a universal healthcare system for everybody where people have good access to care, good, high-quality care, and that it's affordable to folks. And so that's where we, in the long-term goal, where we want to go. So a lot of the stuff that you're going to see on our site nowadays is probably going to be reviewing articles, that are focused on access to care issues, you know, Medicaid expansion, that kind of thing. Where you're going to see us actively engaged is going to be things like expanding Medicaid, maybe talking about Medicare for all, that kind of thing. We actually spent a little money trying to help out the Medicaid expansion happening in, where is it, Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah this past election cycle you know, I've already got our eyes kind of looking at what are the next couple of states that might try to do that and where we might be able to help them, whether it be using social media to help generate buzz, uh, whether it's trying to help them, those organizations get donations to help fund what they need to do from advocacy perspective on the ground. Um, But that's where I see us going. And I think over the next couple of years, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in Congress, because we have a split Congress right now. But where do Advocates go regarding things like Medicare for All because there's been a huge talk about it. And I kind of look at it kind of like how Republicans did repeal and replace. You know, they talked repeal and replace ad nauseum until they finally had control of everything and then they couldn't repeal and replace. So, Democrats, I feel like, are going to talk about Medicare for All ad nauseum. What happens when they actually do get a Democratic president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate? Are they actually going to do it or not? Or are they just going to annoy everybody that they couldn't get it done? Mm. And so I think that's where the next fight's gonna be, you know, because right now we got two years for the rest of this presidency and the rest of you know the Senate control Congress or Senate control by uh, Republicans, we'll see where, where things go from that perspective. And if the balance of power shifts, what's going to happen from the health policy and the access to care perspective?
0: Well, let me ask you. So this we're getting towards the end. I want to ask you some questions. You know, for the audience members who are listening right now and they want to get more involved in health policy, health advocacy, and not sure exactly how to start. What's your advice to them? I mean, is it the first step just literally like speaking out on Twitter and on Instagram and so forth? What's your advice for them?
1: Okay. I know nothing about Instagram. Come on. Other than on. That some, Come on I know on. nothing about Instagram. Patrick. It's a bunch of pictures, and some <laughs> hashtags. I, I'm like, I don't get it. But, yeah, speak up on Twitter, number one. But I think the real thing is try to get involved with a real group that's doing something. And no matter where you are, there's bound to be a group of people that are active. The real question is finding that group that's going to actually do things that you believe in and you can pursue. So, And it all depends on what your perspective is, too, because I don't know what your audience is like, but you're bound to have some you know, Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents, you know. They should find things that they feel value in and pursue those things, regardless of what their political stripe is. But for instance, here in Houston, we have a group called Doctors for Change. They do some things that are useful on the access to care issue. They talk about human trafficking and all that kind of stuff. Some people might be interested in that. I've had policy prescriptions sort of Try to partner with a group called Cover Texas Now because that's a bit more in line with where I want to see things go, which is focusing on getting coverage expansion, specifically in Texas. We're one of the states that still doesn't have Medicaid expansion, and that would cover, you know, tons of people, save the state tons of money and make public hospitals like mine run much more efficiently if, you know, our patients who... Pay nothing right now because they're uninsured, are able to pay something because they either have Medicaid, you know, kind of help funding those systems. But that's what I would recommend. Uh, There's other groups, like if you're one of those Medicare for all people, I'd say join, you know, your local chapter of Physicians for National Health Plan because they do a lot of advocacy on that. And they've been there for decades um, working on that particular issue. And I think just having more and more physicians behind those causes is extremely helpful. The other thing to do, reach out to your local congressperson, call them up, schedule an appointment, visit with them, tell them what you care about. And if you care about some of the same things that they care about, they may want to use you because, again, you as a physician carry a lot of weight and a lot of respect. And so my congressperson, uh, Sheila Jackson Lee out of Texas, she is... A fierce advocate for gun safety. And when it comes to talking about that, you know, I've been invited a couple times to talk in front of crowds for her to talk about the experience as a physician caring for gun violence victims. So I'll be there standing side by side with people from Moms Demand Action, from other people that, you know, whose lives have been impacted by gun violence to the chief of police you know because you know the police have to deal with this issue too they're the ones that are getting shot at as well with weapons that you know some people would not like to see on the streets
0: right right well look we're getting towards the end of the interview i want to ask you some really quick fast fire questions you tell me what comes off the top of your dome piece don't think too hard about it you game you ready to do this yeah (laughs) all right so we can part we talked about a lot If we can parse down this podcast to one thing, what's the one thing you want the audience to walk away with from this podcast?
1: Don't stay in your lane, doctors. You have the right to talk about whatever you want to talk about.
0: Love it. So knowing what you know now, right, as an attending, what kind of advice would you have given yourself as a pre-med?
1: It's a long trek and it sometimes winds right or left and you just kind of got to go with it.
0: Okay. So you're pretty high up within your department in the ER. You have a leadership role there. You obviously are running policy prescriptions. You're a dad, father. Give us a personal habit that you're using right now to make yourself more successful. Learn to say no. Mm, I love that one. I love that one. So no FOMO on your
1: part? I mean, you have to be really selective with especially in academics. You got to be really selective with the things that you choose to do. And so if it is not completely in line with where you want to be five to 10 years from now, don't feel bad saying no to it.
0: I love it. I love it. So name a famous figure, someone that you admire or, you know, find inspirational that you would not mind trading places with just for 24 hours.
1: I would say like either Teddy Roosevelt or Barack Obama. It um, okay. depends on if I got to trade the Teddy Roosevelt part, if we're allowed to do time travel too, because otherwise I'm not trying to just you be can do whatever brave right you, you
0: now. You can do whatever yeah, you want to okay.
1: do. But I mean, like
0: both guys, Teddy Roosevelt, why?
1: I mean, so why Roosevelt? I think like, he just had really interesting life. Like he was an interesting guy. It's probably he's, nice. He was a
0: rugged, rugged man. He was an educated, yeah, rugged like man, right?
1: A, an educated, rugged man that talked about universal health care. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that seems pretty cool. And he got to be president too.
0: Got you. And then Barack Obama.
1: Obama, I think just, you know, because, again, he's in the room making the decisions, signing things like the ACA, which, you know, years before he signed it, I jotted down on a notepad sort of what I think were kind of the elements of what became the ACA. And I was like, this seems like what they should do. And then a couple of years later, it's like,
0: ah, he's doing it. <clears throat> so. OK. All right. I love the answers. What's one life hack? or even just some technology that you're using right now that makes life easier for Dr. Cedric?
1: I think for me, it's a lot of these you know, cloud-based things like Google Drive, Dropbox, you know, that just help collaboration uh, happen a whole lot easier because I really hate getting emails. And it's just a lot easier to edit things. I do a lot of editing, so it's a lot easier to do that over those platforms.
0: All right. Well, Dr. Cedric Dark, I want you to complete this sentence. I'm not just a doc, I'm a
1: health policy wonk. What does wonk mean? I
0: I hear that all the time. Explain that to me, please.
1: Have you ever heard the word no? Yeah. K-N-O-W. Yeah. Do it backwards.
0: Okay, that's wonk.
1: Yeah. Because we're in the no.
0: Oh. shah. Okay. You know, for years, I've always wanted to know why the heck are people saying wonk, wonk? Okay. Now I get it. All right. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Got to be well, in the know. Only, I mean.
0: only you would know that, Dr. Cedric. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> hey, so Dr. Cedric, seriously, thank you very much for being on Docs Outside the Box. Really, really appreciate it. What you're doing, really, you know, educating congressmen, educating people who have power and ability to make policy that affects everybody, you know, on a population basis, is something that's really powerful. And I just, oftentimes, we don't do this in medicine. I want to take an opportunity just to just give you kudos and to acknowledge what you're doing. I know oftentimes it seems like it's a long, lonely road, but we really do appreciate what you're doing and I hope you keep it up.
1: Well, thanks very much. And make sure if you're listening, you can follow me at Real Cedric Dark on Twitter. And if you want a little bit more of the policy stuff, at PolicyRx on Twitter.